This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we will be exploring self-compassion and flourishing in sport. Many athletes believe that they should be self-critical and hard on themselves, and never satisfied with their achievements. Yet, what if an opposite perspective focused on self-compassion would actually be much more conducive to achieving meaningful sport experience and well-being? These and other questions will be explored today. I'm delighted to introduce my guest, whose research has made key contributions on understanding self-compassion and well-being in sport. Dr. Lea Ferguson is an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan. Her research has touched upon various topics in sports psychology, as well as indigenous people's wellness, both of which will be touched upon in our conversation today. So welcome to the podcast, Lea. I've been very much Looking forward to meeting you and having this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And so introducing you, you've been very productive. So you have loads of work on self-compassion, which was something that has really captured my attention. Looking at well-being as well, which we know is a really big topic in our sports psychology community today. But so you are very productive, so it's actually very difficult to keep up with everything that you're doing. So I think as a start, it would be really nice to just get a bit of introduction to who you are, the person behind the research, and then like a little sketch in terms of how your research interests have evolved during your career up to today. Sounds great. Um, and thank you for, uh, again, the invitation to be here and the, the lovely introduction. So I'm Leah Ferguson. Um, I am a citizen of the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, um, and I'm joining uh, this podcast from Treaty 6 territory in the homeland of the Métis, um, residing in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. You introduced my research area so lovely. Um, I always think of myself as sort of having two research streams. One of them which I was trained in and I sort of consider my primary research area is sports psychology. Um, so working a lot with young women athletes to find ways to overcome setbacks and challenges in sport um, and help them flourish and reach their potential in sport. And then my other research area is Indigenous people's wellness. And when I started at the University of Saskatchewan about eight and a half years ago now, time flies um, when you're having fun. When I started my position, I sort of saw it as this wonderful opportunity to, to do more. So I had 
my sports psychology training, my sports psychology research. It's still, you know, my my tried and true passion, my baby. But I sort of saw a faculty research-based position as an opportunity to do more. So for me, being Métis, um, I saw it as a great opportunity to start to do more for community and with community. So I really wanted to reach out to um, kind of broaden my research horizons into Indigenous people's wellness. So I collaborate with Indigenous peoples across Canada to uh, still focused on the well-being piece to support holistic wellness. So through things like youth mentorship programs, for instance. Um, And then I have the really neat opportunity to sort of have a almost a hybrid of the two research areas at times and do some Indigenous sport-based research too. So that's that's a pretty neat bringing together of my interests. And then another great passion is the applied work. So I, I'm a mental performance consultant um, with the Sport Medicine and Science Council of Saskatchewan and a professional member with the Canadian Sports Psychology Association. So that's kind of a broad introduction to to the work that I do. I always think there's a, a reason why researchers are, you know, intimately interested in what they research. Um, and for me, a big part of that is is the personal side. So I grew up as a competitive dancer um, from a young child into my late teens, and I sort of look back on that now and think to myself gosh, if I knew even an ounce of what I know now, then I would have been in such a better position to, I believe, flourish, um, you know, to enjoy the competition even more, to get more meaning out of it. Um, Some of these resources in terms of sports psychology skills would just have served me so well. So I kind of keep that on the forefront when I'm engaged in my research of thinking of the, you know, the young ones out there who, who can so benefit from things like self-compassion to help them flourish in their sport. Yeah, thanks for the lovely introduction. And we'll certainly talk about your research with Indigenous people, and we'll do that a little bit later on. But I think we'll first jump into your more earlier, earlier research. And anybody who is now reading sports psychology literature and getting to know the field Talking about self-compassion doesn't seem to be such a countercultural idea. So we do talk about well-being, mental health, mindfulness, these kind of things a lot more nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you started, this was probably a little bit countercultural. So maybe just explore with us a little bit in terms of how did you start working with this idea of self-compassion? Where did the idea come from and why were you attracted to looking into it in more detail? Yeah, um, I agree. I had I had never heard of self-compassion prior to starting to do research on it. Um, so I give, you know, full credit to my, at the time, undergraduate research advisor, still extremely close colleague and lifelong mentor, whether he wants to be or not. Um, Kent Kowalski introduced me to self-compassion and he he came across it while um, attending a, a research conference and he um, heard Dr. Mark Leary from Duke University talking about it. And Kent sort of said, this is, I think, the missing link to our research. This is what we're missing in 
trying to support athletes um, in their performance and their well-being. I think think there's something to this. And he sort of brought that back to the lab. And um, I remember just being an undergraduate student at the time and was very interested in learning more about it. And Kristen Neff, who is a, a scholar from uh, the States, she was at the University of Austin at Texas, is really credited for sort of bringing self-compassion into the general psychology literature world. Um, Self-compassion has Buddhist origins and she, uh, Neff, is really credited with um, bringing it to sort of explode into the psychology area. And then we kind of caught on to it and started to look at it in the sport world as well. But we really, again, saw it as, you know, in, in contrast to say something like the self-esteem movement and there's nothing inherently wrong with self-esteem we all want to you know feel worthy of ourselves and feel good about ourselves but sometimes the process to obtaining high self-esteem whether it's comparing ourselves to others always having to feel better than others just to feel worthy that there was something a bit challenging with that a little you know it's not always possible to always be above average and always be better than others so um, self-compassion in contrast kind of steps in when you maybe aren't above average or aren't you know feeling um, greater than others and you can still have that self inherent self-worth that maybe wouldn't be there with self-esteem so um, we really kind of caught on to it as maybe sort of this alternative to self-esteem and that's sort of how we were originally framing it Um, it's it's come a long way for sure I think the debate over you know self-compassion self-esteem is is a little over now but in response to your your question about you know our, our early interest and what made us curious about it was sort of looking at it through that lens for sure and I mean since then we have found self-compassion to be just linked with so many adaptive outcomes in sport outside of sport too a lot of Neff's and her colleagues um, research has really found just so so much healthy or adaptive or constructive outcomes that are linked with um, self-compassion. Yeah, such an interesting distinction between self-esteem, self-compassion. I haven't really thought about that. Mm-hmm. And in the sport experience, yeah, clearly there are a couple of people who tend to win the competitions and the rest of us tend to be somewhere <laughs> in the middle. And, Else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thinking of yeah. myself as a recreational runner and so forth. And so... Yeah, so I I think that's that's a really interesting uh, kind of to think about the difference between these concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you made already started mentioning that there are links to these other positive concepts, and one of the big ones you worked with is this eudaimonic well being, mm-hmm. and this is this is a big one that has then like many dimensions to it. So maybe you can just mm-hmm. introduce a little bit to that idea and why why would it be uh, that self-compassion also helps you to experience eudaimonic well-being mm-hmm. yeah i i was introduced to eudaimonic well-being during my graduate work diane mack at brock university was doing research on it and um, it really piqued my my interest i always had an interest in that well-being side of things this psychology background that i i bring to a lot of my work And she introduced me to, you know, there's sort of two different families or frameworks when we look at well-being. There can be the more hedonic side, which is more focused on 
happiness and pleasure, satisfaction, very affect-based, um, which is more, you know, state-like and fleeting. Sometimes it can come and go quite quickly, this hedonic form. In contrast is eudaimonic well-being, which really stuck with me. It has sort of what I describe as almost more meaningful underpinnings when we're talking about well-being and wellness. It's more about reaching potentials and pursuing excellences. So it has that more you know, enduring richness to it can compare to the hedonic approach. And um, like many well-being frameworks out there, there are a lot of eudaimonic uh, well-being models. Alan Waterman looks at personal expressiveness. And I was really drawn to Carol Riff's model of eudaimonic well-being, um, which Riff sort of outlines as optimal psychological functioning at one's highest potential. So it really kind of captures this idea of striving to reach one's potential. Myself and some of my colleagues have sort of used it interchangeably, as you were saying, as flourishing. So I'll often go back and forth between flourishing, eudaimonic well-being, and reaching one's potential. And Riff's framework includes six dimensions. Um, so according to Riff, an individual is optimally functioning um, if they are autonomous if they have mastery or control over their environments, a sense of personal growth, positive relations with others, purpose and direction in life, and self-acceptance. So again, just those sort of six components really resonated with me personally about there's, there's something more meaningful here than just I feel happy or I'm satisfied right now. Um, so we were really interested in looking at this model of flourishing in sport. There isn't a specific, you know, conceptualization or operationalization. There's no measure of Riff's model of flourishing and sport researchers are working on it, um, but it's proving to be more difficult as, as a lot of uh, measurement and psychometric challenges have. But we wanted to look at you know, if athletes are being more self-compassionate on their journey to reaching their potential, you know, is there a link there? Is there a relationship? Why or how might self-compassion be linked with flourishing in sport? And I think we weren't all that surprised when there was a relationship that athletes with higher levels of self-compassion um, do have higher levels of eudaimonic well-being that you know, extending this kindness towards ourself um, through challenges in sport is related to things like having a sense of meaning and subjective vitality and autonomy and a sense of control. Um, and you asked such a great question that we were interested in actually during part of my PhD work, which was more about the how or the why, the mechanisms as to why or how might self-compassion actually be linked with flourishing in sport and through a set of um, actually both quantitative and qualitative research we explored and tried to identify some of those underlying mechanisms and four really seems to come out as sort of strong, those being positivity, perseverance, passivity, and self-criticism. So those sort of seem to counter each other in some ways, um, but conceptually thinking through them sort of makes sense. So Athletes who are more self-compassionate tend to be more positive or have an optimistic outlook, which then can perhaps help them, you know, overcome hardships, flourish in sport. 
And the positivity piece, it's always important to clarify that it's not about rose-colored glasses and everything's rainbow and sunshines. And in fact, it's it's in some ways the opposite. It's athletes who are self-compassionate have the the clarity and safety to see things just as they are, flaws and weaknesses, and just as much as the the positives and the the you know the the strengths of of an athlete too. So, being able to sort of stay positive even when we're acknowledging those challenges and maybe setbacks that we experience in sport or the things that we're still working on um, that that can be really helpful to reach one's potential in sport and that sort of links with the perseverance piece so that if I am more self-compassionate and I'm you know maybe maintaining a bit more of an optimistic outlook I might be more likely to have that increased perseverance, stick to it, I can get through this. Some of the really neat findings in the literature show that athletes who are more self-compassionate, you know, have less fear of failure, fear of negative evaluation, concern over mistakes. So they are almost inherently more likely to just lay it on the line, persevere through those hardships and setbacks, because even if they do fail, they're still going to be there for themselves. Again, sort of in opposite of self-esteem. So if you're self-compassionate, you're still going to be there for yourself at the end of the day, even if you did fail or you didn't quite, you know, set that PB or whatever it might be. So that increased positivity and perseverance, you know, really does sort of conceptually, and then we have some of the empirical evidence to go with it, link with things like sense of meaning or self-acceptance in sport. And then the passivity and self-criticism ones are really neat mechanisms, I think, because it's actually the flip side of sort of the the directionality in that athletes who are more self-compassionate tend to have lower passivity. So they're less likely to be complacent and not really care, not really motivated. In fact, they, they want good things for themselves if they come across those difficult sport experiences they are more likely to sort of take it head on engage in whatever actions are needed to keep pursuing towards reaching their potential and then inherently the the self-criticism piece makes sense in that typically individuals and athletes who have higher self-compassion have lower self-criticism so they're less likely to harshly evaluate themselves, overly judge themselves for things that are going wrong because they are being self-compassionate and therefore can, you know, do again what is needed to overcome whatever setback it is, whether it's a plateau or an injury or a mistake, um, and, and, you know, pursue that meaning in sport, that growth in sport, things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, lots of those things make sense the way you explain them. And you already started talking a little bit about that there would be also a sense of like this sense of meaning in sport and self-compassion might be also related. And you have some of your studies are showing this. I'll link, I think it was a 2015 paper mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you also you scale to assess meaning in connection with self-compassion. I'll, I'll link that to our show notes so people can go and read. Yeah, maybe just share your thoughts in terms of how does then this sense of meaning, how does it fit into this puzzle? How how does it come together into this <laughs> bigger picture? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and it really harkens back to uh, my comment of, you know, when we look at eudaimonic well-being or flourishing, 
um, Carol Riff's framework is, you know, domain general. There's no specific context to it. And so that's sort of where our, our work originally started was just looking at, you know, not necessarily in the sport domain, but just athletes, eudaimonic well-being. And then in the 2015 paper, as you mentioned, that's when we went, okay, but let's contextualize it. Let's look at this in sport. And so we tried to get creative. And again, I credit uh, Kent Kowalski for being my creative uh, thinker in uh, our research collaborations. But we looked at something like sense of meaning, the actual sense of meaning scale to try and capture personal growth in eudaimonic well-being. And I do think that's a big part of how I, I even just personally um, see eudaimonic well-being is that meaning piece. It's not just about you know, satisfaction or happiness, but am I actually getting meaning out of this? And I think, again, that kind of goes to that more um, rich or enduring aspect of what flourishing or eudaimonic well-being is in comparison to the hedonic side of it all. So I do think that the the sense of meaning is such a, an integral piece. And that is one of the, um, since we sort of matched, you know, meaning with personal growth, when we were sort of side by side trying to operationalize each of Carol Riff's dimensions in sport, the sense of meaning one really does come out quite regularly as having a, uh, you know, relationship with self-compassion, for instance, for instance. So there really does seem to be, as you were saying, like something there about this resource or self-attitude of having compassion towards ourselves in our journey through meaningful experiences in sport and how that can be a really helpful tool um, because we, we, you know, athletes, any level, you were mentioning uh, being a recreational athlete in some way. And sometimes I jokingly say in the various recreational hats that I wear in sport. So from that level and everything up to that international competitor, the challenges that, that can be faced are, are so many and so varied and so diverse in trying to, you know, find that meaning that it's so great um, if there are facilitative and adaptive resources available to try and pursue that meaning and not get, you know, stopped in our tracks through those hardships that might come up, whether they are just, you know, seeing others who are excelling more than we are, or if it is overcoming that injury or just having made a silly error in the you know, recreational league that we're playing, having kind of that resource there to help pick us back up so that we can pursue that meaningful experience is, I think, really valuable. And, you know, things again, like the positivity and the perseverance that can come from self-compassion, I think, play a really big role there. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in your own sport experience, self-compassion was certainly not something that was introduced to you and if you had known what you know today perhaps you'd had a different experience and that would have helped you to if I'm correct to say maybe to have more meaningful experiences as you pursue sport and you mentioned that you are also one of the areas you work with is applied sports psychology practice so I wonder whether in your experience are the practitioners Are they attracted to these ideas of self-compassion? Are they working with them? What about coaching? I worked in um, in England for a couple of years, and 
my colleagues were often doing work, for example, in the football academies. And there seems to be this culture of mental toughness and you know, really harsh. And for me, it sounds like the opposite of self-compassion. But so I wonder what are your experiences and the applied world of sports psychology and coaching where, where you are situated do you see that this is also making a difference in, in the practical world of mm-hmm. athletes and coaches? It's such an important point, right? When we think about, you know, going from the empirical or theoretical to the applied, right? And just how important that is. And for me, I think that's kind of the sweet spot. And I sort of see my applied work and like you're saying, practitioners of getting to try and translate some of this research into actual tangible here's some ways that even the research is showing is helping. Um, and, um, you know, I'm obviously an advocate and it, it informs the work I myself do with, with athletes and, and coaches and sport parents and teams. But you bring up such a good point about, you know, just the larger culture of sport. And, you know, in some ways, this idea of being kind to yourself, not getting you know, carried away with a difficult experience, recognizing that others go through things does really counter some of that rigid, tough, push through the pain culture that can be rampant in a lot of sport cultures, not all, but a lot. And some of the work we're doing or that we had done previously, almost originally with self-compassion, definitely brought that to the surface. So in some of our qualitative research, we heard directly from athletes, some athletes anyway, that hesitation around, okay, I like the idea of self-compassion, but I think I need to be self-critical to reach my potential. I think I need self, self-criticism to really push myself when the going gets tough. And hesitations around, well, if I'm too self-compassionate, will I settle for being good enough and being mediocre in sport. And that's not what I'm going for, right? So we sort of heard this really, I thought it was really neat kind of qualitative evidence suggesting there might be concerns or hesitations around embracing it. Meanwhile, we're getting all this great quantitative evidence saying, but it's linked with all these great positive and adaptive outcomes in sport. So we, you know, try to, to make sense of that. And I think you're right in that that those research findings are are a reflection of some of the sport cultures out there and thinking about, you know, is it just up to the athletes to respond in a self-compassionate way if that's part of their mental skills toolbox? Can coaches in the larger sport environment be one that's more conducive to allowing self-compassion? Can coaches be modeling self-compassion for their athletes? And can that kind of permeate their coaching philosophy and how they interact with their athletes? So I think there's lots of work to be done on that front in terms of the actual research side. In my applied work, I've, I've had to sort of check myself a few times because I think I go in, I have, I know I've caught myself, gone into a few contexts where I thought I'd have to really sell self-compassion and have been surprised and I think you know if I think of some environments that might be a bit more traditionally rough and tough and push through the pain that I thought okay they're not going to buy this how can I spin it and then found myself you know working with coaches for instance who said yep I'm a true believer let's get this for all of my athletes how do we how do we get them to be more self-compassionate so 
I've been pleasantly surprised in some contexts myself that, you know, everything from swimming to tennis to football in my own experiences, for instance, that there has been this appetite for self-compassion. But it's certainly not a perfect, perfect setup. There is that culture, as you were saying, of rough and tough. And it, the language of self-compassion, for instance, is one that we often wonder about. And we've brought it up in some of our research, too, in terms of is just the phrase self-compassion or that term and the words we use to describe it. Does that not connect with athletes in the best way that they can if we think of you know like high performance context and and again sometimes I've been surprised and some um, you know international high performance athletes say no this is exactly what we all need and then others you can kind of see yeah but and then you can kind of maybe see the hesitations coming out so I do think the language of self-compassion is something to explore further gosh I've been to Uh, Kristen Neff um, leads some self-compassion intensives and I've had the wonderful opportunity to attend one and she has said outright change the language make it match the the audience that you're working with you know I think my, my own struggle is how do we change the language but still stay true to the underlying psychological construct and not switch to talking about something else like mental toughness or resilience which you know I think we can say are these positive psychology, especially the resilience piece, closely linked, but but still unique in their own right. So I do think a larger culture shift is needed when we just think about those stiff upper lip, push through the pain context, so that it doesn't just become an individual's responsibility, but that there's this larger environment, community, culture, resilience that can be supporting each individual athlete too. And it's lovely to hear these, also these encouraging experiences that also with coaches with whom you thought that maybe this is not the first thing that will resonate with them, that they are actually actually on board and, and they see the value of that. So that's that's lovely to hear. And the broader cultural change is something that we can all work towards. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think there's glimpses of it happening, right? When we think of the the mental health, I don't even want to say movement because that isn't a fair description of it. But, you know, there is more of this push for context and environments that are more safe and supportive and that those can just as much, if not more, support athletes in these contexts to to flourish and reach their potential in sport. Yeah, wonderful. It's been a really interesting conversation i think we covered very nicely the basic ideas around eudaimonic well-being and self-compassion so it's a good time for us to finish for the first part we can have a little break and in the second part let's go into details for example discussing with how the self-compassion and well-being link link to gender so thanks so much for the conversation so far excellent thank you Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help 
for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.